Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Nobody has rattled more cages in Washington than Maureen Dowd, the Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist for the New York Times. Uh, Her columns have uh, vexed succeeding uh, administrations and presidents and people who work there. I can attest to that as one of them. Uh, But she's also... Uh, one of the great writers in American journalism. And she's just uh, published a book of her columns, The Year of Voting Dangerously, uh, about this year's election, which is worthy of literature. Uh, We sat down uh, in Washington recently to talk about the campaign and her career in journalism. Maureen Dowd, good to be with you. You... You know, so many people come to Washington like that. People say, well, I came to Washington when and I you, you didn't come to Washington. You, you've you always been a Washingtonian with some exceptions, but you grew up here. Uh, what was Washington like for you uh, when growing up? Um, hi, David. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the first memory in my memory bank is actually the Capitol at night because um, my mom and I were going down to pick up my dad from work. He was a D.C. police detective who was in charge of Senate security. You know, he was he was there for the Puerto Rican terrorists. He chased one. He ran over to the house and chased <coughs> one of them to the ground. And this he, was when the Capitol was invaded. Yes, but. and he was there for the um, Joe McCarthy hearings, and that's when he made. Mary McGorry's career by giving her a front row seat, even though she was a cub reporter. And he said to my mom, let's help that nice Irish girl out. (laughs) (laughs) And the rest is history. So your dad had a lot of contact with these people. Did he have observations of them? Yes. And in a way, I think that's where I get my sensibility, because sometimes Times readers and Democrats are are disappointed that I'm not writing an ideological column. They really don't understand it because I don't know if anyone else does it that way, and it's hard to do. You're not In coming. Fairness, you pissed off some Republicans. Yeah, too. yeah. You're you're not, and that's when my family, you know, doesn't speak to me for years when a Republican <laughs> president is in. One time with W, my older brother Michael was all huffy with me at a family dinner, and he said, you know, if there was a hurricane, you'd blame it on W. And then there was, and I did. <laughs> so, he knows you. Your brother knew you. Yeah, exactly. So, so, anyways, so your dad yeah. knew some of these yes. players. Yes. So he did not, you know, he would take it, the human being, how were they as a human being? So, um, I mean, he was a Democrat. He stayed up all night the night Truman was elected. and But he thought Truman was a great human being, you know. He knew, he knew him from he the knew Senate. He knew him, yes. And, um, Why did he like him? 
he just said he just radiated decency. And, you know, some people were kind of snotty to the little people or whatever, but he had a lot of hilarious uh, anecdotes, like Lady Bird used to come over every Friday and load all the leftover meat from the cafeteria, <laughs> the Senate cafeteria, into her car so they could have it for dinner parties. And, <laughs> you know, it was a crazy time. What do you there. think about Lyndon Johnson? Uh, Lyndon Johnson, you know, was not the nicest person. My brothers were pages, and, you know, he was great and awful in American history. But as a as a majority leader, he was very tough. And my brothers were pages, and they had another... In those days, uh, Capitol Police were more like law students and things, and there was a young Capitol policeman who was a student who went in to check Lyndon Johnson's office one night and found him um, in flagrante delicto, so to speak, and Johnson <laughs> tried to get him fired. Oh, you speak that way. <laughs> but the remarkable thing was that this kid was under the patronage of Senator Bible, who had more seniority than anyone else in the Senate, so he didn't lose his job. But in those days, senators were getting drunk, and then they'd they'd put their foot in the brass spittoon and be clomping around <laughs> with one foot in a spittoon. And, you know, and uh, the senators, my brothers would have to pick up the phone when senators' wives would call and say, I know he's there, like in the lobbying room, and, they'd, and the senator would be shaking his head going, no, no, tell her I'm not. So he must have, you, you said that he was there for the uh, uh, Army McCarthy hearings. Right. He must have uh, known Joe McCarthy. Yes. Well, I think we might have been, you know, not me because I was too little, but um, I think we might have been the only pro Jim McCarthy family only because it was a tribal thing. You know, he was uh, Irish and Jim McCarthy was Irish. And, um, you know, that was the same problem that Jack Kennedy had when he right. absented himself. They were the Cause, other cause I think Irish pro McCarthy family. I think dated Jim McCarthy. I'm worried that it was in my house because I think... JFK lived, I live in Georgetown in a house where he lived when he was a young Senate bachelor with his sister. And I am worried that some of those Jim McCarthy dates might have taken place there. Did, uh, did your dad uh, have observations of McCarthy? No, again, it was just tribal. Mm -hmm. He, um, Joe McCarthy obviously had a drinking problem. He was, yeah, he, he was, uh, a mean-spirited guy. Right, right, right. He was. Um, in that case, it was just uh, just, just an Irish thing. Yeah. yeah. What about Jack Kennedy? Um, yeah. I grew up with two pictures in the house. One was a huge picture of Jack Kennedy, and one was a huge fake Mona Lisa. <laughs> so, yeah, we were a Kennedy family. I mean, I think my dad, I think, went down one time to try and get some patronage jobs from Bobby Kennedy, and Bobby Kennedy was like, we don't do that, you know? So I think that was uh, shocking to him that an Irishman yeah. wasn't going to give kind patronage of a light jobs. on the Irish. Yeah. Thing. But I remember they got JFK once to come to one of their ancient order of Hibernian dinners, and, you know, my dad had a whole scrapbook on Al Smith, who was the first yeah, Catholic sure. to run for president. I think he was half Irish, right, and half Italian. Yes. And, um, and he was so proud, you know. And so everybody held their breath when Kennedy might lose it because of his religion. And, you know, that was a really scary thing because Al Smith, you know, had had such a hard time with religion, too. What, what did it mean to, to your family and to the country from your perspective as a, an Irish Catholic family when Jack Kennedy won that election? 
Oh, well, that was incredible. My sister was there at the inaugural. She writes about that in my book, you know, and her strange political trajectory. But it started when she was 18, freezing in the cold. She couldn't even vote yet, you know, just looking up at her idol. And then, strangely enough, this is also in her essay, she moved to California then and was at the Ambassador Hotel the night Bobby oh, Kennedy man. was assassinated, and she wanted to vote for him. But then, you know, she was in California, so then she really liked her governor, Ronald Reagan, <laughs> so then she became a A Republican. A yeah, I was going to ask you how a, how a Democratic family becomes a Republican family, which happened, obviously, to a lot of Yeah, my mom loved, after my dad died, you know, my mom fell in love with Ronald Reagan, as did my whole family, and... Uh, they, my mom used to say, you know, when I look at Ronald Reagan's face, I see the face of God. I would always come home and uh, from, where was I, college then or before that? And um, she would have like uh, uh, letters that she'd written to Reagan and she would always write these leaders letters and little letters would come back and she would you know, say if there was something he was being criticized for, she would write a letter. But she would do that to everyone. I remember one time I came back and there was a letter from Al Gore thanking her because she had written him a letter and said, I know everyone's saying you're not sexy. <laughs> like when he was <laughs> running for president, she goes, don't worry about it. You're sexy. <laughs> you know? That's nice. So how did he take that affirmation? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm did sure. He, did you ever talk to him about that? Or no. did you try and pretend it wasn't your mother? I think it was when he was showing the Pope around, and for some reason people were saying he wasn't charismatic enough or something. So she would always write them letters. But most of her letters were to members of Congress who had the temerity to refer to Edmund Burke as an, a British statesman. They would get very sharp letters explaining he was Irish. <laughs> you know, um, uh, I just want to, as an aside on Gore... Uh, and we'll get back to it because I know you—you know—you were there for the Clinton administration, but uh, and writing about it. Um, but it seems like Gore is a parable worth reviewing at this point. Yes, because of what happened in 2000. You know, 537 votes in in Florida. Uh, you know, whatever you—you you, we can have the whole Supreme Court debate and so on. And 90,000 people voted for Ralph Nader. Um, and Gore uh, clearly would not have gone to Iraq. I think that was highly unlikely. Uh, would have been way down the road on climate change. Would not have spent the surplus on tax cuts. Um, a whole lot of history rested on that one vote. Right. Uh I think about that because people say, well, it really doesn't matter. Well, you know, we can review it from the point of view of mistakes he made, uh, one of which (laughs) today for some reason someone was tweeting out the picture of him and Bill Clinton jogging in short shorts. Yeah, I saw (laughs) that. That was one mistake. (laughs) Yeah. um, I think the mistake that politicians should learn from is um, don't, 
have, you know, Hal, Hal Raines, who was a, a brilliant yeah. political uh, Washington bureau chief for a while, used to say that, you know, the people who hired mercenaries, as opposed to people like you with Obama, where you would crawl through glass for this person because you believe in them. It's your excellent book, Believer. So, you know, Thank it's you. about that. So if you have people working for you who don't believe in you, and I think this happened to Romney, too, um, it's hard because they told him not to talk about the environment, and he took that advice. And that was the only topic where he came alive and didn't mm-hmm. seem robotic. So if he could have just said, no, this is who I am. I'm going to talk about this. This is what I'm passionate about. You know, I think he would have been right on that subject. And you're, you're so right, too, about Romney, who I've gotten to know since right. the election. And, you know, the guy is an incredible family guy. Right. He's, a warm person and, and uh, you know obviously takes great pride in his business career they didn't want him to talk about that for obvious reasons though it was going to be talked about uh, they uh, didn't want him to talk about his faith which is a huge part of his life because Mormonism was the exact was, same yeah if he could not talk about his faith he couldn't say who he was right and it was the exact same thing so Gore took the advice not to talk about the environment Romney took the advice not to talk about their faith rather than saying, I can't explain who I am without that. And as you know, some of these political consultants, and that was the fun of Trump in the beginning, that he overturned this political apple cart, because some of them just radiate, not, I mean, it isn't contempt, but they radiate sort of disdain, amused disdain for their candidate. You know, if they're not believers and they're raking in millions and acting, rolling their eyes at the candidates' mistakes when they when the candidates are following the bad advice they've gotten from them, you know, and also last night's vice presidential debate, you saw Tim Kaine make the same mistake that Gore made in his, which was, um, you know, when Gore. Uh, Ross Pro calls it gorilla dust, throwing gorilla dust. So Al Gore went in to throw gorilla dust at W. So we walked up and kind of got in his yeah, got space, in his grill, and yeah. W gave this bemused. You know. And apparently, was prepared for it. I guess they they anticipated that, having watched Gore's debate, past debates. So yeah. he was he knew at some moment. Uh, it's actually a pertinent because I think it was during the town hall meeting that that ha- town hall debate, you know, these town hall debates, you can wander around right. the, the set, which is what's going to be interesting We're, as we speak. Uh, Trump and Hillary Clinton are preparing for their town hall debate. The blocking and the theatrics of that are, are very complicated. But we we digress because I want to get – we will get back to contemporary okay. times. And I agree with you, by the way, on Kane. I think Kane is a – wonderfully decent yeah. guy who was sent out to play a role that he was ill-equipped yeah, to play. Yeah, it was just when you try too hard to be macho in those situations, it comes across as overcompensating. And as Carl Hulse, our chief political correspondent, tweeted out, you know, Pence and uh, Kane are both kind of happy warriors, and Pence wasn't acting like himself. Kane wasn't happy. I'm sorry, yeah, Kane, I mean... Kane was... Sorry, Kane Pence wasn't actually acting. Did, yeah. yeah, right, Kane uh, was So you uh, went to Catholic schools here. Right. Uh, and you went to Catholic University, right? And you studied English, uh, and you obviously took it pretty seriously because your writing is littered with both words and literary references that um, I, I never understand. <laughs> but uh, what what uh, what did you led get, you? Did you get Trump as Coriolanus? 
No, <laughs> I didn't. I want some sort of annotation for the, Ill, you know, for the literary dumbos like me of four-year columns. So. I think I use movie references more often, but I I did major in Shakespeare, so and that's how I I see my job more. Uh, how power warps. Uh, people or how they rise to the occasion remarkably Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. more than you know just to get back to Gore for a second you know lots of people I knew were upset when I wrote about his mistakes in the debate they're like don't mention that just mention how dumb W is and I would say (laughs) well W isn't dumb but beyond that you know, everyone around the world saw what Gore did. Yeah. So there's well, no the point hiding it. this is the thing that bewilders it. me. I get some criticism sometime myself now that I'm in this back in this more of a commentary role. And it's like, well, don't say that. Right. It's not what you say. It's what people do. Yes. Uh, and they so. can read it and take advice as well. Yeah. Right. But do you, well, I, I'm just I'm I I want to talk about all that. But I want to talk about your your path too. what led you from. English literature to journalism. That was a real, I think I have the longest, most Byzantine path in history because I, after um, after college, I got a job at, at the Washington Hilton Swimming Tennis Club where I hired and fired lifeguards and <laughs> sold K. Graham tennis balls. And uh, I wore a tennis dress to work every day, and my family was very upset and kind of staged an intervention. And they're like, you know, we didn't, a lot of them didn't have college degrees, and you have a college degree, and you can't be wearing a tennis dress to work. So my brother invited me down to this bar and introduced me to a friend of his who was the sports editor at the uh, Washington Star. And he said, How fast do you type? And I said, 60 words a minute. And he said, okay, you're hired. And I said, but I have to wait till after tennis season. He said, okay, you're fired. (laughs) So it went on like that. And then I ended up working all night at the Washington Star just as a dictationist, which was in the old days before computers. So this Um, was the graveyard shift, like midnight to— I did tennis during the day. I sold tennis balls during the day. And and also I think I was a substitute teacher thrown in the middle. And then (laughs) at 9 p.m. I would like— you know, all the old-fashioned things, which you have written about so beautifully in journalism, where you, you know, get the copy sheets and yeah. you, with carbon and your um, uh, typing. So reporters would call in, and then I would type their stories on a typewriter. And if it was an uh, attractive uh, reporter, I would put on lipstick, even though <laughs> he couldn't see me. <laughs> Just... You know the girl on the. This other was end before of the Skype, phone. I imagine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, no, I tell, I talk about my early years in journalism, and I talk about the fact that, uh, you know, you type on these carbon books, and you know, one cop, one cop, you'd keep a copy, a copy would right. go to the copy desk, a copy right. would go to the city desk, and I tell these stories to young people, thinking that the carbon paper thing was really interesting, and they'd say, "What's a typewriter?" Yeah. I mean, it's a long, a long time ago. But what? And and there was a tradition of, you know, journalists sometimes would um, interpolate that they'd say something that they meant to be funny that was aimed at us. And then we would think it was part of their dictation. So I remember Jack German, you know, commenting negative. Great political reporter. 
uh, negatively on on some politician's quote, and he said, "Yeah, and if my aunt Katie had wheels, she'd be a tea cart." <laughs> and that ended up in the story after the politician's quote, because the dictationist didn't know he was he was editorial. And did you take stuff? I mean, like I work nights at the Chicago Tribune, right. and I got a whole education in life that I. Right. Didn't see a Did you have to get them beer and stuff, the editors? Uh, the copy clerks got – I never – I escaped that. But, you know, I mean, we – you know, I did a lot of listening to police radios. And oh, a yeah, lot I of, used to have to know, do that. All of that stuff. And taking – there was a great old uh, police reporter at the Tribune named Henry Wood who was the night police guy. And he would say stuff – he would call in a story and he'd say, you know, five people found, you know, hacked – this, that, you know, missing an arm, shot, burn. And he'd always finish by saying, foul play is suspected. <laughs> uh, we, but then we'd have to write the stories up. You know? We had we had an old guy who did it too, and he had, um, what do you call it, like chip cards that you'd put in and you call every su- suburb in Washington. And so for 20 years he called like Woodbridge, Virginia, and then he'd always say, is anything going on? And they'd always say no. And so then this one day he... He called and he's like, I know there's a tractor trailer crash out there. And the woman is like, well, what do I know about that? It turned out there was one number off and he'd been calling this widow (laughs) for 20 years and saying, is anything happening in Woodbridge? (laughs) And she'd say no. And she had nothing to do with the police department. So did you – this was a job that you got um, because you needed a job. When did you realize this is what I want to do? Oh, I really backed into it. I was, you know, working the night shift, and then and then they'd let us try and do stories once in a while. And so I was a clerk for two and a half years. And, you know, um, my mother would constantly be calling not to talk to me because she wanted to say that streetlights were out near my apartment <laughs> and other complaints. Um, so sometimes I'd be answering the phone, and she'd be trying to get stuff fixed in the city that had to do with my safety. Um, but it went on for a long time, and then finally I got a shot to cover the Marvin Mandel t- trial, the jury, when the jury In came Maryland, back. In yeah. Maryland, former governor uh, who was— uh, governor, yeah. yeah. And so we— So you, you, they, they took you off the clerk's desk, and they sent you to Maryland? Right. To, be a, to learn how to be a reporter? Yes, and the jury, you know, was coming back, and so we ran around and found jury members, and then I kind of never looked back. It's not—I'm not—my personality isn't that well-suited because I'm yin and journalism is yang, but, um, you know, I guess there's room for some introverts and shy people in journalism. Well, nobody would guess from your columns that you're a shy person. Um, What's kind of like, you know how Beyonce has that other stage persona, Sasha Fierce, that she puts on to force herself to go out? It's kind of like that. You have, you're being paid to do the job. So even if it's hard to do, and it is, I think, hard to do, you you have to do that. That's your responsibility. And it's a huge honor, you know, that the New York Times would give me that responsibility. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with Maureen Dowd. I want to ask you about the Washington Star. You know, I, the Washington Star was sort of legendary. What was the Washington Star like when you were a young reporter? Well, I remember, I, you know, I asked you about whether you'd ever been sent out for beer because yeah. when I was the night clerk, I used to get sent out all the time. And one time I almost got fired because I brought back light beer. <laughs> 
Yeah, <laughs> that is a firing were, offense. The editors were so crusty that that was. <laughs> I think we even. I'm had, shocked that they were sending out for beers because I had a night city editor when I was working there who'd send the copy clerk down to the Billy Goat Tavern and he'd come back with martinis in a in a uh, coffee cup. Oh, did they have growlers? <laughs> yeah, growlers for beer, yeah. Yeah, because my grandfather ran a bar in D.C. and um, my mom was always going to get growlers for the ladies because the ladies were not allowed in Into the, the bar. bar. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so what was the star like working at the star then? It was so much fun. It was an afternoon newspaper, hard as this is to believe. So the deadlines went up to one in the mm-hmm. afternoon. But, you know, it was like everything that you've written about the experience. It was journalism when it was it was really fun to work in it. I don't know if I would be a journalist now because, you know, it has deadlines every second yeah. of the day, all day and all night on eight different platforms. You're expected to Snapchat and Instagram and I'm Snapchatting, so that's how ridiculous the situation <laughs> is. I think they threw me off of our Snapchat site because I wasn't doing it right. But, you know, there's so many different things you're expected to do simultaneously. And, uh, you know, it's hard. It's more like being a wire service reporter. You can't. I used to sit there for eight hours and try and think of the right lead on one story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, this is why I always enjoy I, I, I preferred actually calling in a story and having to dictate off the top of my head because then you didn't have time to second-guess yourself. Right. And it was pure uh, Yeah, instinct. that used to be my job, to take that dictation. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, I mean, th- that was an era where there was just real passion for the story. Right. And, uh, and there was a sense of um, uh, merriment about chasing uh, stories. and uh, Also, yeah. you know, it's sort of although they're lovely people, the audience development people, it just makes me a little depressed because they're always sending out bulletins like um, if you mention Beyonce, you'll get a lot of clicks or if you mention Prince, you know, his death, you'll get a lot of clicks. But well, how can you? How do you work that into a story about a rock? You know, it's just it's. It'd it's, be weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It'd be it'd be right. it, it, it'd be strange. And there were some great characters back then. You mentioned Germond, right? Uh, who else was uh, back there then? Uh, I just remember one time when I was Jim at, Bellows was the yes very editor. dashing. He told me I had a tennis column. He was a legendary. Yes, editor. very dashing guy. He, I had a tennis column, and he told me reading my column was like watching grass grow because <laughs> tennis. But I'm sure was he meant that in really the nicest way. Yeah. No, and we had Germont, who was this rotund, amazing political reporter. And I remember I went out to my first political rally, and I was so excited, and I tapped. Germond on the shoulder and I said what does that banner over there say and he goes it's just another expletive deleted banner <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you uh, when did you sort you you started covering politics you moved over to the times when um I moved over. I was at Time Magazine for a couple of years. After the, the star, star folded. folded. Yeah. Then I went to Time Magazine and was in the nation section for a couple of years in New York and D.C. And then um, Anna Quinlan called me, and she was the deputy metro editor, and she found my clips in some dusty file cabinet. And she called me, and she was wonderful to work for. She has she had worked at the New York Post, and she has a very sexy but Times-like sense of story and 
loves to drive the story. And she sent me out on a story right away about all the children living on the street in, um, on 42nd and 43rd Street in Times Square. It ended up as a movie, I think. But, um, you know, and I really love doing that story because one time... When I was four, we were on a family trip to New York, and I almost got kidnapped on that street. And my brother and sister ran out of the video arcade just in time to see Mm. this guy walking around the corner with me. Um, Yeah, so it was heartbreaking to see all these homeless kids. And just just going backwards for a second, how much did your sort of study of love of literature feed into your work as a journalist and writing a story like that. Well, that's what, you know, I always see it as uh, the stories. (laughs) In fact, when the Times hired me, I had an interview with this guy, Seymour Topping, who was a classic Mm -hmm. Timesman, and I was like, oh, this is such an amazing city for human interest stories. You know, there's a story on every corner, and he paused, and he had a very posh voice, and he goes well, that doesn't necessarily mean we want to hear those stories. (laughs) But I love, you know, the human element in the stories. I am as far as you can get from Nate Silver, let's tote up the numbers, big data. Mm -hmm. You know, I just love the effect that people can have when they throw their weight against history, you know, how they deal with crises. And the White House is the ultimate pressure cooker. So it's really what's amazing, as in other jobs, when you get to the top, you should feel this amazing ratification and rush of confidence. But instead, oftentimes, that's when your gremlins come out. And then you never know what historical event a president is going to have to deal with. So the intersection of the historical event and the gremlins, you know, creates a lot of uh, chaos. Let me ask you about one campaign you covered in 1988. Uh you were covering uh, the presidential campaign, and one of the candidates was Joe Biden, right. who I know you're very close to now. Well, I don't know about very. All right, you're you're friendly <laughs> with him. You have a good relationship. Well, let's say this relative to your relationship with other politicians is ha- probably I'm very warmer. close to him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, but you broke a story that cost him his candidacy then and potentially his political career. Uh, what happened? Um, this was this was another case of, um, you know, where if you don't have the right people around you, you know, you see this with Donald Trump. He's got this wacky motley crew. But if you don't have the right people around you, you can really get in trouble. And he had... Pat Cadell, who tended to be a little wacky, and and one thing I, I think that's fair. one thing that happened. It hasn't gotten better either. <laughs> yeah, he used to when he was in the Carter White House, he'd call Rosalind Carter at midnight and try and you know tell her what Jimmy should be doing. But one of the things that happened was without Biden knowing, he put he used to listen to records of Bobby Kennedy's speeches, and he put chunks of them into Biden's speeches, and Biden just didn't recognize them, you know. So that was Pat, and then. Biden really admired Neil Kinnock, who was an amazing orator in, in a British a election. British Labor, Labor Party leader. And so he wanted to, you know, adapt some of his speech. And, um, you know, I guess it was kind of like Melania. It started as, and Michelle, it started as admiration. But then the problem was it wasn't even 
the plagiarism. It was more like what Biden didn't realize was he was taking chunks of this guy's life. Mm-hmm. So he identified with him because he was from a family of coal miners. But and, you know, Biden was from Scranton and coal country, but Biden didn't have any relatives who were coal miners. So he said something like my coal miner relatives, mm-hmm. meaning Kinnock's. You know, and the same thing he said, football, but actually Kinnick was talking about soccer, which I knew from my dad who played soccer and called it football. But um, so that was where, you know, he went over the line. He admired the speech and he felt he had a lot in common with this guy. But then you really can't take elements of his life that don't match yours. And there was another thing about people who hadn't gone to college. But the point is that Biden... You know, again, if he'd had the right people around him, I think they could have, you know, staved that off. Like, I don't think that would happen for any candidate you were working for. The odd odd thing is that he is a a very evocative speaker on his own, and his his own life story is compelling. Yes, he didn't Uh, need any of it. So what was your – you wrote this story. What what was your – you knew that – and this is what reporters have to do, but you knew that it was going to have a potentially catastrophic impact on his campaign. Well, again, I'm, I am, uh, you know, Plato says every society needs a watchdog. And that's, I think of myself more as the watchdog. So I'm writing for the citizens and the readers. I'm not, I'm not writing. I'm, I don't want to be friends with politicians. I don't want to have dinner with them. I'm not trying to curry their favor. I'm not trying to get exclusives from them. You know, I'm just trying to give them the information they need to make good decisions. And so, again, it's not ideological. Mm -hmm. I wasn't thinking of it that way. It was just, you know, it's a human story of what happens when humans are under pressure. He was under a lot of pressure. He made a mistake. The people around him didn't. Uh, help him in that situation. It wasn't about his basic decency, which we both know he has. Yeah. It was just a campaign I, I, I mean, I have to confess, I, 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 I really love Joe Biden. I think he's uh, really uh, uh, decent and real a person. And uh, Well, you know, I there was a really bad moment when he had the press conference about withdrawing. I had gotten lost, like I did today, and I was in a, ba- I was in a back staircase. We point out just to, so people know that Maureen was a bit late for I our was, I got lost. recording here. But, but anyway, I was lost again, and I was in a back stairway of, you know, the Senate, and I... I ran into him and he was standing there alone looking at his notes that he was going to withdraw and I just felt sick and I remembered my dad saying you know whenever he had to shoot someone who had a gun on him he would feel like there were bones in his throat and it was like that it's like of course you feel horrible that you would affect someone's life although I like to look at it that in the end, maybe I saved his life because then he was out of the race, and that's how we discovered he had, he had an aneurysm, aneurysm yeah. which if he'd been in the race. Did you say anything to him when you ran into him that, that, that moment? No, we just looked at each other for a second, and then I just continued into the press conference room. You, uh, you, you, uh, when, when did you start writing your column? Um, 95. So in the midst of the Clinton administration, but you were in the White House at the beginning of that. Yeah, I was the Bush White House reporter for four years. George H.W. Bush. Yes, and there's an essay. Yeah, there's an essay in the book about 
my 30 years with the Bush family and the letters he wrote me, which are hilarious. They're kind of the opposite of Thomas Jefferson's, which he himself admits. Yeah. You, you, I mean, he's a retired politician, so you can speak freely and you write freely about him. You admire George H.W. Bush. Well, he did some things that I did not admire, obviously, like Willie Horton. That was a terrible episode in campaign history. And, um, yeah, what did Roger Ailes had that great line, who was one of the people who was on the Willie Horton advertising, you know. Yeah, he was the head of the advertising team. Yeah, and he um, he said, he was joking to, I think, Time Magazine, or joking to someone at the time, the only question is whether we're going to pres- portray him with a knife or without a knife. You know, and Lee Atwater was saying, oh, he was going to make everyone afraid that mm-hmm. this guy was going to, you know, move in next door to them. That was a terrible racist episode in campaign history. Have you ever talked to Bush about it? Um, I'm sure I have, not lately. But um, And another, I also think Clarence Thomas was a terrible decision by him. The guy had only been a judge for a year. You know, he is he has a terrible record on helping African Americans. So I don't whitewash the Bush history. You know, they had surrogates like Lee Atwater, whereas Trump does all the wet work himself. <laughs> you know, he got rid of the middleman. But but beyond that, Bush Sr., you know, himself was a very decent guy who believed he can't even fathom what's going on in Washington. He can't fathom Trump. You know, he throws a shoe at the TV when he comes on. But he also couldn't fathom Ted Cruz and being an anarchist and obstructionist and trying to burn down the Capitol you were working in. You know, he was a strong believer in bipartisanship and getting things done. And he used to um, invite people over to the White House and try and woo them and have cocktail parties and, you know, which is all gone in Washington now. And I remember in the book, I describe how he had this group of uh, liberals over. They were all men who had supported him in the first Iraq war. And uh, he was giving them a tour of the White House residence. And when they got to the painting of Dolly Madison, he kind of awkwardly said, like, what a rack. So he's just kind of a goofball, you know, you know but uh, decent. Uh, Dan Rostenkowski, the late Dan Rostenkowski, uh, w- uh, served with him on the House Ways and Means Committee when he was in the House, George H.W. Bush. And he told the story about once Bush became elected president in his first meeting at the White House. He was chairman of Ways and Means. And Bush said, uh, Mr. Chairman, can I speak to you for a second uh, alone? And they go into a little ante room. Bush closes the door and he looks to see that nobody's standing by the door and he closes and turns around and says, Danny, I'm the freaking president of the United States. Can you believe that? Um, which yeah, is he disarming. Was, he you know? was very much like Tom Hanks in Big. You know, he was like <laughs> a little boy caught in a, um adult's body and the, when he was a diplomat in China. They used to call it, you know, they'd say his personality was like ants on a hot pan. You know, so it's hard to see him in a wheelchair because he, he was so uh, alive, always like a huge golden shepherd bounding around. But I, I think if people read the letters, they'll get a really great sense of him and how, you know, decent he could be. What about Bill Clinton? Uh, what were your observations of him when you were covering him? Yeah, I um, obviously... He was brilliant. I really admired the way he and James Carville can take really complicated 
subjects and reduce Colloquialize them, them in yes, ways that people can in understand. ways that people can understand. Yeah. You know, he can he can take uh, something that's very abstruse, you know, and make people really understand what it means to them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess my my problem always with him and the Clintons is there's this Faustian bargain that goes into it. So when the Monica thing came out, instead of just admitting he had done it and he'd made a mistake, he dragged out all these classy, accomplished female cabinet members and said before the cameras, and they had to say he was telling the truth, when obviously he knew he wasn't. (laughs) And this was a lifelong pattern where he would deny, 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 and then have to admit. So why not just admit it? You know, he was polling with Dick Morris to see if he should tell the truth. Just tell the truth. You know, I don't think people expect a perfect political life from their presidents, except Barack Obama, which they love about that, his relationship with his family. But anyway, in order to get the wonderful progressive policies for women that the Clintons offered, you had to go along with this retrogressive behavior toward women that Bill Clinton, you know, employed. And why do you always have to have a gun to your head with them? Why can't you just get the great policies without having to deal with their Michigas, like with Hillary? If you, Michigas if, is an Irish Catholic. Yes. Oi, yeah. If you want, if you want, you know, her, the Supreme Court she will give, you have to look the other way on her being reckless with the emails and on her, um, that the sleazy blurred lines on the Family Foundation. You know, it's always like you've got to go along with something sleazy with them in order to get the good side. So she has the idealistic public service side. How much exposure did you have to her when you were there? Well, in the book, I have my early uh, stories about her when I was a news reporter. And when I went back, I was sort of dumbfounded to see how supportive I was to the point where some interviews have interviewers. She'd probably be dumbfounded yeah, to find that, too. <laughs> I should send her one. Have asked me if I had a girl crush on her. So we went. I covered her as Bill Clinton's wife, and I was very sympathetic because, as with Michelle, you take these women who have the exact same educational accomplishments and some of the same credentials as their husband, and yet they're expected to go into this little antiquated satin jail called the First Lady yeah, it's Job. it's really hard. And unlike Michelle, Hillary chafed against it and chafed against it. And so we were we went to a revolving restaurant in Covington, Kentucky. It wasn't Kentucky. easy for Michelle, by the way. I think it was a tough adjustment for her to no, give up her life I do career. Not. I, think, I do not think it's easy. I think she has given the most amazing you know, job performance of almost anyone I've ever seen in Washington. And uh, I think it's hard. But Hillary openly chafed against that. And mm-hmm. so anyway, we had wine and dinner at this revolving restaurant and we talked and she wasn't as guarded then. And so I, I was very supportive of her, but I remember during that campaign she got some stationery where they had dropped the word Rodham from Hillary Rodham Clinton, and she just sent it back right away. Like she, she, Even before she got the job, she just hated the whole idea of being the first lady. She hated the title, everything. And then I covered I wonder her. if they could find the stationery. It could be useful now. <laughs> 
and then I covered her when she went up to the hill on health care, and I said she was dazzling and that, that there were, you know, it was tricky because who would talk back to the president's wife and they were handing over 16 percent of the economy, but that she and Bill were handling it really well. But then it all fell apart in this same pattern we see with the emails or even the pneumonia, as you said. You know, the allergy to transparency and your great line about it's the stealth, not the health. And so she did it in a very secretive, defensive, my way or the highway way. And then uh, the Paula Jones Trooper Gate story broke and Bill couldn't really give her the advice he should have been giving her. And so it all got tangled up in their marital stuff. And that's the pattern that is so destructive to her. We're going to take another quick break and we'll be back with Maureen Dowd. So you, you, you make the case against uh, or, or your cons- you, you, you state your concerns about Hillary. What, what do you what, – what you, you said you were very admiring of her. What did you see in her that, that you admired? I think she – And admire, I assume. I think she has always had this idealistic public service side. You saw it when she got famous before Bill at Wellesley, when she took on Edward Brooke, you know, in the Wellesley commencement speech. And she... He was the senator from Massachusetts. And she spoke out against the Vietnam War and said we should be living ecstatic lives. And, you know, she cared about children's issues. But... Then I think when she went to Arkansas, she started making some compromises, and maybe that's where she got really concerned about money. She felt like if something happened, she wouldn't have enough money and this obsession with money, so that this whole race now is kind of between her and Trump is like a greed is good, revenge of the 90s thing. So somewhere along the way, she just developed paranoid kind of Nixonian But she does patterns. have this history of advocacy for yes, children. Yes, but I, what I'm saying is the, the paranoid part trips up the idealistic part. So if you could get, if somehow she could take down the walls and the scar tissue and get back to that pure idealism that she started out with, you know, but there's so much... Is it possible that she would feel freed up if she were elected president to display Well, that's that? unfortunately the unfortunate lesson I've learned, which I quote Truman in the book saying, you never know how a man, a man in those days, now a man or a woman, will take the responsibility of being president. You just don't know if somehow they're going to blossom and get more confident or if they often sometimes, and it's not only the White House, like it's happened with Times executive editors, you know, they just feel less confident when they get to the top. And then you never know, you know, W probably would have been a perfectly popular bipartisan president if it hadn't been for 9-11. And that moment brought out all his insecurities and fears, and he just wasn't able to rise and the occasion. And you, you, you write about the interaction uh, between him, the psychological interplay between him and his father. and Right. There's an essay about that in the book. Yeah. Yes. And t- talk about that for a second. Well, I re-reported this really long essay because I wanted to make sure my take on this extraordinary father-son presidencies was right. And I think it is right. And, you know, it's it's 
uh, I hope it's a definitive piece on that. And I just think, yes, they loved each other, but they were competitive. And the son used his father as a reverse playbook. So if the father had had one term, W wanted two terms. If the father had been criticized for not going into Baghdad, W wanted to go into Baghdad. So a lot of things had to do with the father-son relationship. Which I think, by the way, you and I have talked about this. This is pretty common among fathers and sons in politics. There's a there's a whole book to be written. I keep urging you to write it because you'd be the best <laughs> uh, about that. And right. It's, uh, this, is a, this is a common it's tough to grow up in the shadow of a great man, right. uh, a, a, you know, especially a president. And if you know, so you're you're at once embracing and 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 competing with that legend, right? So W's resume was exactly like his father's, except slightly less. Like his father was captain of the Yale baseball team, so W was self-appointed stickball commissioner. You know, his father was a war hero who you know, had to eject from his plane and fend off the Japanese boats. And and W, you know, had a sort of lackadaisical career at the National Guard. So everything was a little bit less. The Even the uh, oil business in Midland, just a little less everywhere. So I think... So you think he would want to take out Saddam Hussein because that was something his dad didn't do? Yes. So what's the deal with Donald Trump? You 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 probably <laughs> do you, have, do you have you probably have, ri- do you have written a more of weeks more, for the show. <laughs> uh, you probably have written, um, I think, more sympathetically to him than a lot of other, uh, certainly a lot of other people on your page. Um, but how you know? I, I think of it because you talk about fathers and sons competing. It seems like his relationship with his dad, Fred Trump, right. Uh, is the formative relationship in his life, and uh, it's led to some kind of wacky stuff. Yeah, I think you're right. His father used to just say, you know, if you're not a winner, you're a loser, and this whole winner-loser dichotomy. It seems to – I mean, he seems obsessed with – this is why he seems to go nuts when things don't work out his way. So when the conventions were deemed a win for Hillary Clinton and a loss for him, he went on a three-week kind of bender of crazy attacks. Right, exactly. And then then after the last debate. Yeah, well, he clearly has – and I would just like to say I don't think I write sympathetically about him. I did do interviews with him, which many of my friends wouldn't read. He no longer will do that because he tweeted – you know, a week or so ago that I'm a wacky, neurotic dope. <clears throat> but I did think really? I you wanted... Should, you, I wanted I, you should take that very hard because he rarely characterizes people in those kinds of ways. <laughs> I did take it very hard only because I didn't think he put much thought into my, you know, appellation. I thought, you know, he could have given me something more customized like Pocahontas or Sleepy Eyes, <laughs> Chuck Todd. But um, <laughs> but anyway, you're right. My friends would not read the interview. So in the sense, if interviewing him, which I can no longer do, is too sympathetic, and it is too sympathetic for many Democrats who think Hillary is the only thing between them and the abyss. But when I interviewed him, I did ask him very tough questions. I asked him, you know, if it was true, as came out in uh, Ivana's divorce papers and uh, Marla Maples used to tell people that he kept Hitler by the bed. That wasn't an easy question. Not the actual Hitler, but a book. <laughs> right? Mein Kampf. So, yeah. That would be supremely weird. <laughs> Maybe. 
yeah, maybe he has his ashes somehow. And, um, you know, I asked him if he had ever paid for an abortion with any of his girlfriends. I asked him what it was like coming back to your question about what would happen if a clinical narcissist got in the White House and had a narcissistic explosion and it would blow the roof off the place. Did he give thoughtful reflection on that? He he got mad at me. He said I wasn't treating him fairly. He <laughs> he doesn't know. He's a clinical narcissist, I guess, which maybe is one of the symptoms of clinical narcissism. You know, you said jokingly Democrats worry that Hillary's the only thing standing between them and the abyss. But this clinical narcissist thing is concerning, is it not? Well, of course it is. I mean, he has completely reduced the Republican Party's ideology and tradition to his own ego. So if he gets a compliment from Putin, all the rest of the Republicans have to twist and turn to yeah. act like their policy is not to be wary of the evil empire. It's, yeah, which, which apparently Mike Pence didn't get the memo. <laughs> yeah, in the it's VP literally debate. crazy. Yeah, Pence. He, well, he just he did what Ivanka did in the convention. He he just tried to gloss over everything Trump has done and said, and just the way Ivanka acted like he was a feminist. You know, Pence acted like he was sticking to the Republican ideology, which he isn't because everything is about his ego. So if he gets a compliment or an insult, then the whole party's ideology would change according to that. Yeah. The, l- let me ask you, I, I, I don't want to tread lightly here because I, I have personal interest in this, but you've been, uh, you've had a, a kind of interesting relationship with the current president who is an old client of mine, I should say as a disclaimer. <laughs> uh, You're his Pygmalion. And uh, he yeah, hardly. I, I think that's overstating my role. <laughs> but uh, uh, tell me, uh, give me now eight years in your evaluation of, uh, of, of Barack Obama, and then I'll reserve some time for rebuttal. Um, okay, so I went to Cuba with him, and uh, when he opened... Cuba a little bit. And I would just like to say that, and I have felt like this from the first time I met him, I just always feel really proud as an American to be traveling with him because he's so elegant and smart and classy and he has no ethical shadows or you know, personal, can I use Michigas again, you yeah. know, that you have to worry about. And I think... This Yiddish stuff is really useful. <laughs> I think Michelle and Sasha and Malia are spectacular. I mean, she's an amazing mother and he's an amazing father. Um, I think the best maybe we've ever seen in politics. I don't know if you can say that, but in terms of ha- the reflection on our country. And... Um, you know, I think he's done a lot of good things where I just only, you know, he, he wanted to be a transformational president, and I think he is, but more because of who he is. You know, obviously, you know, he had ridiculous obstruction from the Republicans. and Do you think race had something to do with that? Of course. You know, in the same way that uh, the, the election of the first African-American stirred up a lot of racism, which we're seeing now. I mean, you honestly want to throw up if you look at the comments next to a Trump rally on YouTube or a right-wing mm-hmm. website. Times did or a mashup Hillary. of that that was pretty stunning. Yeah, or Hillary, you know, and, and just as Hillary running stirs up a lot of sexism. Um, but I just, you know, I just sometimes think that... Um, 
one of his top advisors told me he he would rather be right than win. And sometimes politics is the art of persuading people to do what they don't want to do. And I don't think he had that much appetite for that. So in an ideal world, I just wish he had, you know, liked, you know, or had a little bit more elbow grease. But I certainly think he will go down as a remarkable figure in history. I want to finish up by returning to your dad. Um, a lot has been said. We heard it in the debate, uh, the vice presidential debate, presidential debate. We'll probably hear more in this campaign about police officers and uh, the relationship between the police and the community. Um, how do you process? How do you process these issues as an observer? of the American scene and it's someone who grew up as a child of a police officer who, as you point out, uh, you know, actually, you know, his life was on the line uh, more than once. Yeah, that's an interesting question why I'm certain you were an amazing journalist because no one else has asked me this and I do think about it a lot and it's a very painful subject for me. When I was a young reporter, I asked my editors not to put me on police brutality stories, not because I didn't know it was true. It was just too painful to contemplate. And I knew from, you know, people my dad talked about that in any profession that involves guns, whether it's police or the military, you're going to get some wrong kind of people who are drawn to it for the wrong reasons. And, you know, my dad was well aware of that. And I, um, like all Americans, I'm disgusted and pained and hurt by videos where African Americans seem to get executed. And I, you know, it's it's weird, but it just it makes me angry about the Iraq war because with all those wasted trillions, couldn't we have developed, you know, stun guns or something that where lives are not being taken that shouldn't be taken? Well, you know, I'll betray myself as a, uh, a, a as a liberal, but I also wonder what those uh, hundreds of billions of dollars could have done in terms of uh, creating a better. Uh, opportunity for people who don't have opportunities to work, to, to yeah. learn, to... Yeah, all um, of that, yeah. Which, I, mean, I mean, because this notion that this whole thing is about this one instant in which a policeman and a, a, a person in the community confront each other, right. that, that that's all self-contained event is not right. I mean, there's there's so much going on uh, in, that, in that community, <coughs> in those relationships that are contributing to that moment. You know. No, and I guess it all had to come out. People think it's ironic that this has happened after the first African-American president, but I guess there are just layers yeah, and layers and layers. it has more to do with the, the fact that we all have cell phones now and we're all reporters right. than, than the first African-American president. But I wrote my, my first story, about Maureen, what might have happened before. 43 years ago, my first story was about police community uh, relations in Chicago and a big battle between Mayor Daley and Ralph Metcalf, who was a congressman at the time on the south side about police brutality 43 years ago. This is not a new reality for people in the African-American community, but yeah. it is a new reality for everyone else who's now seeing this. But what worries me is, you know, I, I've seen both sides as a police reporter. I've seen the heroism of police right. and I've seen uh, the brutality as well. 
uh, and these communities that are being uh, the victimized by brutality are also being victimized every day by crime and need policing. And I, wor- I worry about this chasm. Uh, right. And, and you know, when you've had your father, I lived through the 60s. So I had my father called a pig and a baby killer, as they were calling police then, and anyone in a uniform, you know, was just considered trash. And I had to grow up as a teenager through that. And I know the heroism of police. So I think it's painful on both sides. But, you know, I covered, when I was covering Montgomery County Police as a cub reporter, I covered a guy named Robert DeGrazia, who was a famous initial person on on sociological policing, as he called it, where you went out in the community and you got to know the people. And yet somehow that initial spate of sociological sociological policing led to the dirty Harry you know it led to higher crime rates in the dirty Harry kind of uh, movies so and now they're kind of saying well we need sociological policing but it's as you say it's much deeper societal problems that we're going to have to work on I thought one of the actually one of the highlights of a debate that was kind of a grinder the VP debate was this discussion on policing last night because both of them seem Pence and, and, and Kane in particular, who was a mayor and who is deeply enmeshed in the African-American community, even though he's white, uh, they both seem to, to sig- signify that this is a much deeper and more complex uh, situation than politics allows it to be and that, you know, uh, we want to take sides when we have to actually be building bridges here. Uh, which I think is really important. Uh, I would I could talk to you for a much much longer, but <laughs> we, we we've got to go. I urge everyone to uh, to read the year of voting dangerously: the derangement of American politics. Maureen Dowd, uh, I, I say this behind your back. I'll say it in front of you. There isn't a better writer in American journalism. I mean, and every writer envies you. Uh, when they read your work. So um, I, uh, uh, I, I commend this book to everyone. Well, thank you, David. And I'd like to say, go Cubs. Yes, <laughs> that's key. Uh, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.